Hi, I'm Chucky, and I'm your friend to the end. Heidi ho <laughs> They're coming to get you, Barbara. This is my boomstick! Hi, I'm Chucky, wanna play? Hey there, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of the Horror Crypt Podcast, episode number 133. Now, this week, we are doing the same as last week. We're going over to the sister podcast, Home Class Movie Chats, where we are going to basically be reviewing another horror movie. Now, this one, again, just like last week, was extremely disappointing. In fact, so that this one was actually even worse than what I actually had envisaged the last one to be. So, unfortunately, you're not going to get <laughs> raving reviews on this movie um, that we're about to do. So we are going now over to the Home Class Movie Chat where Kat and I are going to review the movie Hereditary. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Home Class Movie Chat. We are your hosts, movie fans, Kat. And Paul. And we just love to talk about movies. We certainly do. We love to talk about movies, except this one. Uh, well, you know, <laughs> you got to uh, do the bad along with the good. I'm sorry. I just don't. See. I got to tell you, my final piece of trivia for tonight is going to really blow your mind at the end of the podcast. Oh, seriously? It's oh, honestly my. worth sticking around through All this right. to hear that last piece of trivia. It's really worth it. Well, what movie are we doing today? We are doing Hereditary. Now, I have heard people rave upon rave upon rave about this movie. And Now, my first thought was, okay, I'm intrigued enough to watch this. I watched this for the second time. Oh, I didn't just, realize you'd seen it before. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to make sure that I'd actually seen the right movie. And I still don't think I've seen the right one. Okay. So I adore Tony Collette and Gabriel Byrne, who are both in this. Yeah. And they play husband and wife. And this is by far the worst film that I have seen associated with either of them. Uh, when we were first talking about doing this on the podcast, my reaction was, okay, Hereditary, Tony Collette, Gabriel Byrne, directed by Ari Aster, his first, his directorial debut. Don't bother. It's boring as batshit. It doesn't make any sense. Don't waste your time. End of, end of podcast. Pretty much so. He was, uh, Gabriel Byrne was so underutilized. He is a magnificent actor. Yeah. And Literally, you don't see him. No, and the and the times you do, he's just it's, milk toast. Yeah. Now, I was, as I said, I still don't. I mean, I've seen this movie, and I will say, categorically, it is the most disappointing, boring as batshit, garbage fest on as a horror movie yeah. that I've ever seen in my life. And I, I mean, I had a through, couple of jump scares, but you saw them coming a mile no, away. I have seen so many horror movies. I mean, I will even put it up there with goddamn Birdemic. Birdemic yeah. actually Stop had more... language, mister. This is a family-friendly podcast. That's going to another podcast. I'm allowed to swear. <laughs> um, this uh, Birdemic was actually more fun to watch, and that was garbage and a half. Oh, yeah. Compared to this piece of garbage. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I, I would actually so... say that this was worse than Birdemic, and that's saying something. Yeah. Now, I am so disappointed that- I mean, at least Birdemic and things like Plan 9 from Outer Space Plan were nine, so I loved bad yeah. that they are kind of awesome in their own way. This yeah. was just plain bad. I have seen, I've seen Plan 9 from Outer Space at least half a dozen times, and I am actually liking it every time I see it. I yeah. have watched this pile of dog doo-doo. 
two times in a row. Sorry, Ari, someone, but it was just plain bad. It was horrible. I'm sorry. And I and I I know I've seen Hereditary. I know I've seen the movie that people are raving about. But if if I hear one more podcast to say this is the greatest movie ever, I want to be. I want to go onto their show and say, "Excuse me, what was it that? What was so amazing about yeah. this movie?" Well, I find it interesting because director Ari Aster wanted to make a film about suffering that took suffering seriously, but I didn't realize that he wanted the audience to suffer along with it. <laughs> he has made me suffer. He has yeah. he has taken away. Now I now the one there thing are so I, many things about this movie I can say, and they're all going to be bad. Now they're the all one gonna thing. Be bad. The one thing that I can say, didn't I say to you that it looked like Utah? It did. Yeah. That's you where they that. filmed at Park City, Utah. Really? Yeah. He liked the ma- he liked it because of the mountains, because they're beautiful and breathtaking, but also menacing and ominous. Ooh. It's just too bad he didn't do a menacing and ominous movie. I know, right? Now, this movie went for 127 minutes, and I'm telling you, I did. You I, want that, drag... I want my life back. I want, yeah, I want my life back. I'm sorry. I want this back because he is this is garbage um and the 127 minutes you are dragged through this mindless tedious boring ass movie now i looked at the budget right the budget uh of this movie was 10 million dollars and it made 82.8 million at the box office who i mean i know you went to see this movie but how did you how did you get 82.8 million dollars out of this trash yeah i don't know I mean, I even went as far, and I don't like to go really into Rotten Tomato, but I needed to go into Rotten Tomato just to see. I want to know what the score, Rotten Tomato score was. Okay. Are you ready? Yeah. (sighs) Unbelievable. This is out of 100%. On the tomato meter, it is 90%. An audience score of a 10,000 plus ratings, 70% out of 100. You have, how? Exactly. Was it like a mass hypnosis or or did they like pump drugs into it, the air or something? The, everyone that walked into that cinema must have must have been told, listen, you're going to go to see and you don't know about it because suddenly you're being given some sort of hallucinogens to say this is a great movie. Yeah. I'm ter- I'm sorry. This movie is by far. I, I don't like to. I don't like to trash movies, but no. there was just nothing good about this. I mean, Tony Collette was brilliant. As always. Yeah, yeah, she was good. I mean, certainly her portrayal of absolute despair and <laughs> when she was crying, you could feel yeah, you know, she feel it was really genuine. Like she was pulling from somewhere very, very deep. Yeah, well, it, it, what, what I find fascinating is that Toni Collette had told her agent that she didn't want to do any more heavy or dark films and only wanted to do comedies because she really shines in, in the comedies. Yeah, she does. But she loved the hereditary script so much she couldn't turn it down. I d- yeah, I just don't get it. There, but she actually no doesn't that- like horror films, which is what made her hesitant at first to act in hereditary. But the only and the only reason she accepted her roles in Fright Night and Krampus were because she saw them more as black comedies than horror films. Well, yeah, well, Fright the remake of the original Fright Night was I mean, I've seen it. It's like, nah. Yeah. Now, Ari Aster put so much love into this film. 
I will give him that. He actually wrote, did you know, he actually wrote detailed biographies and backstories for all of the characters before he even wrote the screenplay? No, I didn't because they he didn't show any of it. Yeah. And he was inspired by family dramas such as Ordinary People from 1980, which is actually a brilliant film and was um, Robert Redford's directorial debut. Okay. Yep. The Ice Storm in 1997 in the bedroom from 2001, as as it is by cl- classic horror films such as Rosemary's Baby from 1968, Don't Look Now in 1973, and The Innocents from 1961. Okay, so he's certainly drawing on a lot, but I even said to you that a lot of the cinematography that he does, I would say is heavily pulled from Quentin Tarantino's movies. Yeah, and... What was it we were watching? Kill Bill. Oh, Kill Bill. Yeah. And I could see the influence. You can see it. Yeah. That at some stage, he went to Tarantino's movies and sat and watched it and went, you know what? I can take that. And it, and it shows so much so in the beginning of the movie. It's but almost what, like um, a stealing from it. Yeah. Yeah. It really yeah. is. And if anyone doesn't understand that, Look at Kill Bill, the way it's shot, and look at the opening part of this movie and even subsequent parts of this movie, and you'll see that there is a direct influence from Quentin Tarantino's movies. Yeah, and it's Tarantino, like he went to the Quentin Tarantino School of Film. Yeah, Tarantino is an amazing uh, you know, movie producer, and he, his visions are, are absolutely outstanding. So this guy must have looked at those movies Someone must have actually pointed him in the direction of Tarantino and said, watch these movies. Things like um, Jackie Brown, things like, um, uh, oh, God, you know, Kill Bill and, and others that he has done and said, look at exactly what he does and incorporate that into your movie. Well, and that's the thing is, is it instead of finding his own way through this, and I get he's a first time director, but it's like, you know, don't. And, and it's like, well, what Quentin Tarantino does obviously works. It obviously sells. So therefore, if I do it too, my movie will work and sell. And it just doesn't work that way. I mean, he made $82.8 million. On, uh, yeah, he did something right. At the box office, that's fine. But I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that you just announced two people, Gabrielle Burns and Tony Collette. Those yeah, two they're powerhouses. huge draws. But the problem is, and I said to you before, they misused... Uh, Gabriel Byrne. He was not even in the movie. Yeah. Very much at all. There at all. And even when he was there, there was no chemistry between him and Tony Collette. There was none no- whatsoever. You couldn't feel any of it. This is what it wasn't a family dynamic. Even even at the point where she is absolutely weeping and absolutely is a broken woman on the ground crying at a scene that we're going to get to, he was almost just sitting there going, Yeah, they're there. There, there, yeah. there. She, yeah. you know, she it, it just didn't work for me. I didn't actually believe it. Yeah. Now, what I will give him credit that Ari Aster wanted any effect that could be done practically to be done that way rather than digitally in post-production. Yeah. So I'll give him I'll give him credit for that. He also wanted to go for scares that were emotionally justified rather than solely leaning on the traditional horror jump scares. So I'll I'll give him A for that. Okay, I mean, certainly, as far as I could see, there was nothing scary whatsoever. Um, there was a confronting scene that you will see, and I even actually got yeah, Kat we'll to, to turn that. away for that because that was a little bit too confronting for her. She's not a horror aficionado. She hasn't. Been... I am not a gore fan. No, whereas I am, and I can, 
I can handle pretty much everything. Yeah. Um, so the scene that I that we will get to, I said to Kat, and I knew it was coming because I'd seen the movie before. You know, close your eyes, turn away, do not watch this scene because it is extremely confronting. But that being said, that's that was not a that was not a horrifying thing. It was just a very confronting, jarring. It was it was just horrific. Yeah. But outside yeah. of that, there was just nothing about it. I mean, no. I listened to a podcast and they were saying that it was the best movie they've ever seen. And it, there's this scene and that scene. And I went to, and I watched the movie and I'm like, so what movie did you guys watch? Yeah. What did you guys watch? What did you see? Because I didn't see this. Yeah. Now, Tony Collette, interestingly, has called Ari Aster the most prepared director she's ever worked with. She praised him for practically having the full movie already shot and edited in his head two years before they even started filming. Yeah, maybe he should have started it earlier rather than wait two yeah, years. Yeah, I don't know. But it was interesting, pardon me, that Ari Aster requested that Alex Wolf, who played Peter, and Millie Shapiro, who played his sister Charlie, go out to eat in character a few times. And they would sit there for up to three hours in silence while Millie wouldn't speak and Alex would try to get her to talk. And Even Alex, the children were very weak. And Alex decided to go method on this and inter and and would only let people call him Peter on the set. Yep. And was in character the entire time he was on the set. And it wasn't until after it wrapped that he introduced himself to the crew as Alex. Yeah. Um I even found the children very weak actors. They didn't they were not standouts. Charlie especially Peter had a few decent no, moments, but Char Charlie Peter, uh -huh. Peter really wasn't, uh, it, it wasn't the entire movie. I didn't believe the whole me, the whole movie was weak. Yeah. Now look, before we get started, really tearing this movie, a new one, which we are going to do, we have to listen to the trailer. So sit back and relax because here is the trailer to hereditary. Come on, Peter. There's your suit. It's heartening to see so many strange new faces here today. I know my mom would be very touched and probably a little suspicious. My mother was a very secretive and private woman. It's Grandma. You know you were her favorite, right? Even when you're a little baby, she wouldn't let me feed you because she needed to feed you. She was a very difficult woman, which maybe explains me. I recognize you from your mother. What? Sometimes I swear I can feel her in the room. She isn't gone. She had private rituals, private friends. Who's gonna take care of me? You don't think I'm gonna take care of you? But when you die. And she wasn't altogether there. At the end. What's happening? Peter! Don't you ever raise your voice to me! I am your mother! Raise your mom! Mom, what's happening? Raise your mom! Raise your mom! 
I just don't want to put any more stress on my family. Now, before we jump into it, I want to talk for a moment about that trailer. Yeah. Well, one of the trailers for Hereditary was accidentally shown at the beginning of a PG-rated family-friendly film called Peter Rabbit in Inaloo, Western Australia. It caused a small panic in the theater with parents fleeing the cinema with their kids, and the theater eventually had to shut the screen off, the, the film off, and offered every audience member a complimentary movie pass to apologize now there i do we do have to have to apologize apologize i have to last week when we were doing um the nun i did say that that there was a trailer that came on that i miss i misspoke i misspoke i got it flipped around i knew there was one of the movies that that had been played in a pg rated movie that this is the one not the nun not so the i apologize nun. so I, I apologize for saying that the nun actually was done i know there are a lot of you that are sitting there were yelling at me last week going that wasn't true <laughs> and now you're sitting there going see we told you paul well yes <laughs> i am eating humble pie i'm sorry i misspoke i knew there was a one there was one that certainly was played in the wrong part of a movie and you don't show that on a pg rated movie so but can you imagine the that i mean it's a very confronting um trailer and that's the whole thing like the trailer makes it look like it's going to be a great movie but then you've got to sit through the garbage to to get through to the end of the garbage because there's nothing even remotely interesting about this movie i mean cat and i had a, have just a recently seen the sequel to avatar which is avatar the way of water and i'm telling you you can knock out about 45 minutes out of that movie with this incredible amount of padding in the center of the movie like we were watching this because we were so excited about seeing Avatar. And at the end of it, I'm like, well, you could take out that part. You could take out that part. That was rubbish. That had no idea about why do they include that one? And really, it, that was a very disappointing movie. So this one is in itself extremely disappointing. Mm. And, I, and I've got nothing really um, positive to say about Hereditary. I don't know what every other people have seen. And if you guys are saying it's a great movie, I'm not going to say any which way that you guys are wrong. You guys have. If they your own think opinion. it's great, that's yeah. awesome. We I just don't my, see it. No, I have my opinion. You guys have your opinion. Yeah. I know for a fact, from my opinion, that I'm never going to get the 126 minutes of my life back because I sat down and watched this rubbish. Yeah, and or I what don't we, li- what we consider rubbish. Rubbish. Yeah, and I don't like to rip horror movies a new one because I love horror movies. Yeah, but this one it's really got to be pretty me... bad for him to say it's bad. Oh. I mean, I have gone through an amazing amount of horror movies that are that are really, I mean, well, well that's one of, one one of one of the catchphrases for his sister podcast, The Horror Crypt, where he says that I, you know, the, I watch the horror movies that are so bad and review them so you don't have to watch them. Yeah, I watch them so you don't have to. Yeah, this movie I've watched. You don't have to watch it. Trust people. me, don't don't you, do you, it. You, you won't get the hundred. You, you don't get the hundred. It's, it's not even back. campy and cult classic no. material. It's just boring. It's, it is. It really is boring. And it doesn't I, make a lot of sense. No, I was really disappointed at this movie. Yeah. And so the movie begins with a viewer with the viewers looking out from a window into a workshop to a treehouse, and then it, of course it turns and zooms into the bedroom into a dollhouse that is in a workshop. Mm-hmm. And I do like this part of the movie because the cinematography is actually quite good because you're that was looking... probably the best scene of the yeah. film. 
because the camera is looking into a dollhouse and you're seeing it's a bedroom. Well, you see up. like all these dioramas and stuff, yeah. and then it takes Someone you inside in of one of them, and then suddenly a real person comes out. Yeah, the door opens up, and we find that Steve, which is Gabriel Byrne's character, he's waking up his young son Peter and his 13-year-old daughter Charlie because they're going to go to their grandmother's funeral. And, of course, then we see that Steve um, says to Peter, you know, is did you know i can't find charlie did she come into your room at all last night and he goes no of course then when steve goes out he finds that charlie's been sleeping in the tree house now we don't know why it's very cold we don't know why she goes in there but she goes in there this is the beginning of it well charlie's weird anyway he is she's a very weird weird little girl so steve's wife annie which is tony collette yeah that okay that noise do it again no, it's not picking it up on the on the thing. It's a it's a nope, it's not picking oh. it up. It's it's a clicking noise that she's doing with her tongue. It's basically where you put the tongue against the top the roof of your mouth and then it kind of creates a suction and you pull it off and it makes a popping noise. Yeah. Yeah, like that. That's what we hear all the time from Charlie. But Charlie's really weird. Um, and of course, Steve's wife, Annie, which is Tony Collette, she's an artist who sculpts dioramas and she's delivering- a little miniatures. Yeah. Mi- really lovely little miniatures, but it starts to take a very dark turn as we find out. And she's delivering a eulogy at her mother's funeral. And of course, Charlie's making the clicking noises while drawing a very strange sketch in her speech. And when she goes to, when Charlie goes to look at her grandmother, who's laying in the coffin, she, Charlie looks to the what what is the feet part of the coffin and there's this guy standing there smiling at her we don't see that guy again we have no reference and no idea who this person is that's staring at her but we find that charlie is making is drawing this picture of him yeah and we're like okay and we see that a person comes up and and like dabs something on the grandmother's lips and walks away that's never addressed ever again nope so once now we're into now there were a lot of a lot of things that were cut out of this film which was mostly family dialogue well, i don't have, know if any of it explains any of this they stuff. must have cut a whole lot out because it doesn't make any sense no um so any then the following that night goes to talk to charlie about her grandmother's funeral um and charlie claims that her grandmother always wished that charlie was a boy I don't think that Charlie ever, that her grandmother ever said that to Charlie, or we don't ever find that out. Okay. So there's a support meeting, like a grief support group, where Annie, um, Tony Collette's character, yeah. recounts her brother's suicide when he was 16 and states that his suicide note blamed their mother, Ellen, for putting people inside him. Though Annie chalks this up to to his schizophrenia, it could very well be that Ellen originally attempted to conjure the demon Paimon through her own son. His death and her failure to summon Paimon would then explain why Ellen put so much pressure on Annie to have children and why Charlie stated early on in the film that her grandmother wished that she was a boy. Because we do later find out that that Paimon was inside of Charlie, which is where that clicking thing came from that's a sign of pyman and but if, she, but if she wished that she was a boy well because then... she needed a body she ended up get, put, getting the demon into charlie and that's why at the end of the film um peter becomes the vessel 
Okay, so if the grandmother was so, and I'm I'm sorry we're spoiling it, but we have to we have to spoil this movie because this is part of the podcast. Yeah, it just it's all over the place anyway, so it doesn't but matter. If 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 Ellen is trying to summon Pyman into a child and wants it into a boy, why wouldn't she just put that straight into Peter to begin with? Probably because Char, you know, why Peter might Charlie? have been too strong at that point or something. I don't know. See, this is why it's confusing. It really because they is. don't really tell you. Because remember, at the end, it's they said, "Well, we had the imperfect vessel, i.e., Charlie. Now we have the perfect, the perfect one, one, Peter." So what? See, okay, so this is why I'm confused about this movie. If they had the imperfect one and it's in Charlie, then why didn't they just decide? Oh, if they wanted a male, why didn't they just put it in, into Peter to begin with? That's what, never explained. Yeah, I know. It is. And this is the whole thing. I think they've cut too much out of this. this yeah. Movie. I think now, they've done too much out of this. I am going to take a, a slight detour yeah. because I really like this. The production designer wanted to play with the idea of sacred geometry and the triangle of Annie, Peter, and Charlie. The square introduces Steve's character, home and groundedness. Circle, which is infinite, Genesis, and Ellen, all different shapes embedded within the design of the set. If you look closely, the second floor hallway has squares and triangles carved into it. Oh, I didn't notice that. Yeah. Probably because I was trying to get a, an idea of what this movie was all about. Yeah, I know, right? Um, yeah, and as I said, Gabriel Byrne, being such an amazing actor, he was so underutilized in this movie. Yeah. He was, yeah. I mean, they could have really just made this as she was a single parent. That would I make know, sense. but that being said, the producer said that it worked out well that Gabriel Byrne and Alex were Wolf had actually worked together previously in the HBO TV show in treatment in 2008. They've actually joked that every seven years they're going to play father and son. Um, and <laughs> Alex and Millie Shapiro, who plays Charlie, knew each other from school because they were in the onset school. Yeah. Because they're, st they're young, yeah. because it made Tony Collette the outsider, which mirrored Annie's character and feelings of alienation within her own family. Yeah. I mean, as I said, Gabriel Boone and Tony Collette, they had no chemistry in this movie. Yeah. I, so know. I don't know whether that was part of the way that the producer or the director wanted it to be, but there was no, there was no, I couldn't believe that they were actually would be married. Well, it, did it you didn't... know that Tony Collette's actually 22 years younger than Gabriel Byrne? No, I didn't. But yeah, I, there was a significant yeah. age difference there. Yeah. But also, amusingly, Tony Collette and Alex Wolf, who plays her son Peter, share a birthday of November 1st. Really? Yeah. Okay. I that's thought that a, was kind of fun. That's actually really good because, yeah. But I, I still don't buy the fact that Tony Collette and Gabriel Byrne were married in this movie. It doesn't, it doesn't no. resonate with me. They really have I, no I, chemistry whatsoever. No. As I said, it would have been probably better if they had just made it um, that she lost her husband and now she's a single parent. It would yeah. actually be. Um, I don't. It would have made more that. sense. Yeah, but to make him a a character in the movie who was well, except there, except for the point where he becomes the sacrifice. Yeah, which we're going to get to. Yeah, we're going to get to that. Um, so I love it when, you know, there's Charlie trying to say that to um, Annie. Um, she also wonders who will care for her now that her grandmother is dead. And I love it how Annie sort of like looks at her and goes, well. I'm your mother. I'm your mother. I, I will. And then she goes, well, yeah, but then who will look after me when you're dead? That's the end of the scene. Yeah. We don't know what the answer is. Well, not just that, but. 
We don't know why she's thinking like this. No, we don't. And the scene and it, is, and it suggests to something a relationship with her and her grandmother relating to the cult, which is never explained. which is never explained. And that this scene ends where Annie is looking through um, a memory book and actually has scenes uh, sees a vision of you know her grandmother in this book, but she just see, she doesn't seem to really want to engage. In what looking at the picture, she'd like you start. You see her start to look, and then she's like, "Yeah, no, I can't look at that." Now, some of that can be grief. I understand that you know that you don't want to look at your. You maybe have such raw emotions you don't want to look at the pictures. I I kind of get that because yeah. um my as as we've said before on this podcast, my mother passed away a couple of months ago. Yeah, and I changed my Facebook header to or my Facebook profile picture to a picture of me and my mom. And I had to actually change it because I just couldn't handle seeing it every time I logged into Facebook. Yeah. So I changed it to one of you and me. Yeah. Now that is, that is a, obviously that is a grief reaction and you know, the, the emotions are still raw yeah. and over time it will get less to the point that you'll be able to look at pictures of your mother. Yeah. And I guess right now, Annie can't look at the, the, vi- the, the visions of her, but it's really never explained uh, because, it, it, and he's got these these boxes, which is you know, mum or mom. Well, because um, she was living, her, her mother was living with her. They were taking care of her, and she died in the house. Yeah, but there is also some underlying, really weird issues with regards to the dynamic of her mother and Annie with bringing up the children, which we find out later. Yeah, through a diorama and, that was very, very weird. Yeah, there was also, but I think if I remember correctly, when she was going through the photo album and she saw a picture of her grandmother, wasn't there something about her, the grandmother wearing there was a, a necklace? Yeah, the, the the medallion with this symbol on it. Yeah, so her her grand her great grandmother was wearing it. Then her mother was wearing the same medallion. Yeah, and there was a or there was there was a picture of all these women around her 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 mother that were almost like. Um, worshiping her, yeah. Um, I remember there was a, there was a part of the there was a picture where her grand her mother had her eyes closed, and there was these women like dropping like gold coins over her, and it was like a photograph yeah. as it was being done. But that's never explained, and no. we don't know why this was happening. And even to the end of the movie, we still don't know why. We've yeah. got no ref- no point of reference. Why were they worshiping her? Yeah, we got no idea. Now this is a scene which. It, it, this one, this part of the scene doesn't make any sense either because the next scene we see, and the the, the ironic part is, it's supposed to be exposition. It's yeah, supposed to help us understand what's going on and why, but it actually just they must have, things more than anything. The editor must have edited too much out. That's all I can put it down to, because this scene coming up is where Charlie is sitting in her classroom and she's off with the pixies, I guess, because she's not concentrating. She's drawing something, she's clicking, and she suddenly hear, or we hear, this bang against the window. And we see that there is a bird that's flying into the window, a pigeon that's flying in the window, right? So at at the break, at lunch, at recess, whatever you want to call it, she goes out with a pair of scissors. And she swipes from the teacher's desk. Yeah, and she cuts the bird's head off. Which is gross. Which is disgusting. And there's a woman across the street. And puts it in her pocket. I know. And then there's but a now, woman... now, what I want to know is how is it that there wasn't a crap ton of blood showing on her sweater that made uh, and the smell that would make teachers go, what is in what your pocket? Is... Yeah. Now, she also has a propensity to eat chocolate bars and she's got an anaphylactic 
a reaction to peanuts. Yeah, she's so, very deathly allergic to peanuts. Yeah. So at one stage when we're in the when we're in the um funeral home when her grandmother passed away, she pulled out a chocolate bar out of her her pocket and started eating it. Her and her father was like, Does it that doesn't have nuts in it? And even the mother says it doesn't have nuts in it because we don't have the EpiPen. Now, I'm sorry, if your child has got a deathly allergic reaction. You always carry an EpiPen. Yeah. Yeah. But she goes, oh, we didn't bring the EpiPen. Well, then, woman, you're in a deep. You're a bad mom. Yeah. Take your EpiPen. Yeah. But so we see her. She's just, I mean, and and as I said, you know, there's Charlie with the severed bird's head in her pocket. She's eating a chocolate bar. And there's a woman across the street waving at Charlie. We don't see that woman again. We don't know who she is. And yeah. in this day and age, if there is a strange woman out there, out the gates of a, of a school, waving at a child, you bet there's going to be police all over the place asking who the hell she is. And, well, and who- that and she's telling him to get out. I know. It's, uh... Yeah. Now, while we're at school, in Peter's first scene at school, he's in class and the words escaping fate is on the chalkboard with the teacher discussing it. This is actually a reference to Halloween, the 1978 film Halloween, where the main character discusses the same thing in class. Appropriately, this movie was released the same day as the trailer for Halloween 2018. Now, are we talking about the original Halloween where um, she's in the classroom and she's yeah. talking about, oh, wow, okay. Yeah. That's so a it's nice an, so it's a reference. So it's an homage to the original Halloween of 1978. That's and nice the movie nugget. was released on the same day as the trailer for Halloween 2018. That's a nice little nugget. Because yeah, yeah, there, there is a scene where they ask Jamie Lee Curtis. She's sitting there in the classroom. She looks out and sees Michael Myers standing there looking at her from across the street. And then the doc, the um the teacher calls upon her to answer the question, and obviously that's the answer. So that, yeah. that's a great little thing. Yeah, I thought now, you like that. What I find really interesting about this next scene is Annie begins to research the apparitions. Now I don't know what apparitions that she's researching. She's just researching the the necklace that her grandmother or that her mother wore around her neck. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, Steve receives a call from the cemetery saying that her that obviously the grandmother's grave was desecrated. And he decides not to tell his wife. Now, that scene doesn't go anywhere. Now, I understand you're not going to go and tell your wife that, by the way, your mother's grave was desecrated. Yeah, it's like, it's like the, the day after, or what, a couple of days after we bury her, I'm not going to tell her that she's been grave robbed. Yeah, but that doesn't go anywhere. But so. it, it does figure in later, but not in such a way that you realize this is foreshadowing. Yeah, exactly. And it, there is definitely some foreshadowing in this, but... We just don't know. realize that it's foreshadowing. At no, this we point. don't. Because it's not being, t- I mean, as I said to in the last podcast, I don't want to be spoon fed and said, you know, being told this is what you do next. But this one is, I want a little bit of why are we doing this and explain to me wh- how we got from point A to point B. So far, we've gone from point A to D, and I don't even know what happened to B, C, B, yeah. B and C. Yeah, exactly. Because uh, I just, I don't understand where we're going with this, the, this part of the movie. Yeah. And even this part of the movie, now, I, you know, Annie says to Steve, that she's going to go to a movie because obviously she's still grieving her mother. Yeah. Which is where we have that scene where she talks about her brother's suicide. Yeah. Now this is where she ends up going to a grief counseling support group, which is awesome because anyone that is, that is, you know, wants to talk to people um, if they can't get the support in the family. And as I said, the dynamics between um, her and Steve is zero. There's no chemistry. There's no love. There's no affection. There's no nothing. 
um, that I can see. So she has to go and speak to someone. So going to a support group is a great way for her to, to let out, yeah, uh, you know, what's happening in her life. And I, I do like the fact that they she does explain about the fact that her brother has a mental illness. We also find out that Annie actually discloses her mother's mental illness issues, including the dissociative identity disorder and her dementia. Yeah. But we're never introduced to her mother in a um in a in a, in a living presence. No. We don't see any of this. We don't see her. We only know decline. what her daughter thinks of her. Yeah. It would have been nice to actually see the movie where where the producer or the director says, okay, we're gonna show you maybe two minutes of like a very quick um okay to either have a scene between annie and her mom yeah or have some flashbacks so we understand it thank you that's what i was i was trying to uh, find the words for a flashback where you can actually see that where she started to where she ended up and you're like oh right so when okay. she's talking yeah. about the identity uh, the identity disorder or her dementia now we understand how she progressively got worse we're never showing that. So we are just going by what Annie is saying, which is very, you know, which is very hard to to comprehend as we go through this this very confusing movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so of course we also see that Charlie starts to see strange lights in her bedroom, but we don't really know exactly where this is going because it's never explained to us. Nope. Even at the end, it doesn't explain no. to us. Um it's Paimon, but we don't yeah. know that. And of course, we also find out that uh that Annie has a new um diorama. Uh, viewing that's going to be happening at a gallery and there's there's a and they're uh, looking to get it finished but it's like they, she, with everything that's going on she's been having a hard time working and, and she's behind and it is really nice because okay this is where it's a little bit creepy okay so the gallery owner is very sympathetic to what's going on and he yeah says, they're, they're actually I, being very kind yeah and 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 of course you would at any in this situation you would and he's like saying okay you don't have to rush we know you're going through things just take your time but we just want to know how you're going with the with your latest bit that you're going to be doing now there's certain you know scenes that she's making but she's also doing one of her grand of her mother in the hospice basically mm -hmm. on her deathbed yeah which is very i guess that's a way of maybe working through your grief but it's a very creepy way of doing it, it. could be but it's but but that's the thing that's what she does she but makes it, scenes from her life yeah now there is also two scenes that she does there's one of her mother standing in a doorway with the light coming from behind her and that's that's sort of like a very it's like a very menacing sort of diorama. yeah it's a little creepy and, but, and steve sees it and he's like that's really creepy yeah but there's also one where you've got a diorama of of what we assume to be annie in the bed in her bed with the baby trying to breastfeed her and her mother standing next to the bed with her breast out. It's almost oh. like, well, you're not doing it right. So I want to show you how. Oh, to I do don't it. remember how I don't remember that. Yeah. That was very, that was a very weird, creepy one as well. Yeah. I, and I, you know, I think of your mother standing next to your bed while you're trying to breastfeed with her. And the, the way the diorama came across to me is that she's there breastfeeding you can see her breast out you can see the baby is there and her mother almost saying oh for god's sakes give it to me you're not doing it right yeah and she's got her breast out ready to start um suckling the baby and it, it, it's a very weird i mean i yeah. know she's doing the diorama to to depict her life but that was just but that's weird that was a very weird one i didn't like that one all right are we um, ready to go to the party we are going to the party this time and we are off to a party now peter Ask his mother if he can go to a party where he hopes to see Bridget, this girl that he's got a crush on in the school, and his, sorry, his classmate. 
uh, that he's very interested in. And of course, Annie asks Peter if she's if he's invited his sister to go with him. Which I'm sorry, why would he why take would you? like a sixth grader to a high school party? I'm sorry, that's this is ridiculous. It's, it's really inappropriate. Now, this is something that I don't believe any person would do. Now, you're going, as you said, you're a high schooler, you're going to a high school party, high school related people. Why would you say to your son, please take your eight, nine-year-old sister yeah. to the party with you? Yeah. She's, she's she was like gonna... 12 and he's like 15, 16. Yeah. Now, well, he's driving age. So he's Yeah, 16. that's right. He's driving. So he's at least 16, 16 17. He's like 16, 17. Oh, no, he is. He's, he's like sorry. 12. So he's 17. Yeah. Um, yeah. So he, because, um, because, yeah, okay. So he's 17. She's 13. Yeah. Now, so it's like, I'm sorry, but no. No, you wouldn't do that because, you know, he may be out late. You, I mean, as Annie said, you're not going to be drinking. You're not going to do any drugs, but take your sister or at least uh, give her the option to say no. Why would you go that down that path anyway? Yeah, that's stupid. This annoyed me. Now, um, I would like to point out that if you're paying attention, when Peter yeah. and Charlie are on their way to the party, the, the cult's logo can be seen into can be seen carved into the pole that figures in. On yes, the you can. I remember seeing that scene because they make it such that they okay they make it so obvious that as the car drives past, they literally hold the camera on the on the pole. Yeah. As if to say, look at every, look at that, people. We th- we think this is going to be. Notice this. This will be important later. Yeah, and it's like, okay, it's a pole with yep. some carving on it. Thank you for letting us see that, but we don't know yep. why. Yeah. Um. So we see also that Charlie's got some some visions of her grandmother surrounded by fire. That never comes back into play. Nope. And of course, you know, Charlie goes with um. <laughs> And he forces basically Peter to take Charlie with him to the party, which it really, I don't know why you'd do that. But anyway, poor Peter has to take his little sister to the party. So, yeah, and of course, he's he's very flustered about having to go and monitor his sister. And of course, well, he, he gets, basically is like, look, there's food. Go have cake. I'm go amuse yourself. Cause, I'm cause going to go party with my friends because he also brings some some marijuana with him. And he says yeah. to one of his friends, you know, because there's this girl that he's very interested in. And he goes over and she says, oh, you know, oh, you invited to the party. Yeah. And um, then she then he says, well, I've got some weed if you want to smoke. And she's like, yeah, let's go. So as he goes to, to you know, go there and smoke weed, um, this is where Charlie comes over and says to him, well, and uh, quite rightly so, what do I do? Like yeah. all these what kids. What am I supposed to do with myself? I don't know anybody here. Yeah. These kids are all 17. And it's like, you know, and he's like, well, just and as you said, go and eat food. There's cake. And she's like, but they're not making it for me. And he goes, no, but if you stand there, they'll give you a piece. Yeah. So she's like, okay, now that's foreshadowing. That's that's a very big foreshadowing. But, you know, this shouldn't be his responsibility, unfortunately, at this stage. Yeah. Now, this is interesting. So uh, the director actually anticipated that he would get criticism on why Charlie carelessly ate a nut-filled chocolate cake slice, knowing she's allergic to nuts at the party scene. Mm. He wrote the film in a way that one can interpret that Charlie is endangering herself because the demon Paimon is influencing her and trying to get her killed. Despite this, the film still received criticism on why Annie didn't make Charlie bring an EpiPen with her or why Peter wasn't more careful with Charlie at the party. 
Or maybe we can put it down to the fact that he's 17, she's 13. He's trying to get with this girl. He's a high school kid. He wants to be with the, these these people. Why is she is why is this young girl being foisted upon her brother? Yeah, but that being said, her mother should have still made sure she had her EpiPen with her. Yeah, but the thing is that when she hoists you know, Charlie on to Peter to go to this party, it's not like that the mother and father are going to go and have wild butt-naked sex in the bedroom or they're going out to dinner. It was just basically, here, take your sister, get out of the I, house. I don't want to deal with her right now, you yeah. take her. Yeah. And so now, it's like, okay. Now, during the party scene, just as Peter enters the bedroom to smoke some weed, some kids are, I don't know if you noticed this, some kids are watching a black and white video on a laptop of someone being beheaded on a guillotine. No, foreshadowing I, the film's multiple beheadings. I didn't see that one. Yep. Didn't see that. No, that that foreshadowing didn't, didn't, yeah, didn't. Yep. So we see that, um, of course, Charlie eats this cake that unfortunately has a substance which she's allergic to and she begins choking and obviously as we know an anaphylactic reaction happens so peter carries his sister to the car and rushes her towards the hospital along a dark country road now as we're going along charlie is really in a lot of trouble now she's trying to breathe and i had an experience i'm not digressing all the way i had an allergic reaction at one stage where my throat felt like it was closing over. Of course, a nurse went, your your you know, throat's not closing over, but I'm sorry, when it feels like it, it feels like it. Yeah. And I was trying I, to get... I had that happen once too. It's terrifying. Yeah. And I was trying to get air. So yeah. when, the, you can't this... get, when you can't get air and you feel like you can't breathe, it is absolutely terrifying. Yeah. So this scene, you know, there's Peter and he's, he's racing towards the hospital Charlie winds down the window to try and get air and she sticks her head out of the car window to try and get some air. And Peter's looking to see what she's doing and looks back. And unfortunately, there's an animal in the road. He swerves to miss the road, uh, to miss the, the animal in the road. And he hits a utility pole, which decapitates her head violently after it hits the utility pole. Now, this de first decapitation scene is actually similar to a real-life event in Marietta, Georgia that happened in 2004. A young man and his friend drove home very drunk after a party, so let this be a listen to you, children. Do not drive drunk. The passenger felt he was going to be sick and stuck his head out the window in case he needed to throw up while the driver accidentally swerved near a pole. The pole's guy wire decapitated the passenger. But did you know this part, hon? Because I know you knew about this. The drunk driver was so drunk, he did not realize his friend was decapitated and continued to drive home, park in his parents' driveway with his decapitated friend still in the car and went inside to go to sleep for the night. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. So let this be a lesson that. to you, pitch kids. And it wasn't until the following morning that he woke up. They discovered up. the body. Well, no, in, in this, uh, in the real life situation is that he woke up in the morning and he was covered in blood, like he had blood yeah. everywhere. And he got up and he said, to, and his, of course, his mother said, what the hell happened? He said, I don't know, but I don't know where all this blood came from. And he, mine. They, they, yeah, he said, and of course they checked him that they retraced the steps back to the car and that's where they found the. Yeah, exactly. Now. Steve Newburn is the special effects guy, and his team also built an animatronic puppet of the family's 13-year-old daughter, Charlie, for her decapitation by telephone pole. This scene led to the makeup team's biggest challenge in the movie. Originally, the car Charlie rode in was meant to be mounted on a track that would lead it and the animatronic puppet into the telephone pole. 
but changes meant that the effect had to be performed by a fully operational vehicle driving at 60 miles an hour. For the gag, a collapsible inner skull was built. This skull was meant to mirror the damage created on another Charlie head that was built to represent the aftermath of the accident. Tests were carried out in the makeup shop using a baseball bat to simulate the telephone pole's impact. Even without the planned track guiding the car, the effect went off perfectly. The driver, he nailed it the first time. Steve also said that it looked fantastic, but they only used a few frames of it because it was a little too disturbing. Yeah, this is why I said to you, please close your eyes when this scene happens. Not the actual impact, but the scene afterwards where he drives home, parks the car, gets into bed, and we see the following day where there is a scene where her decapitated head is on the side of the road with ants all over it. Ew. Yeah, that's the confronting scene. So, of course, we see that. The so the parents is, didn't know Charlie was dead until the next day when they went out and looked in the when car. Annie, when Annie goes out, because Annie was going to go out to go somewhere. And this is where uh, Peter wakes up and you hear, and it's, sorry, it doesn't really wake up. He's laying there like, you know, in a trance um, and he's laying there and she goes out to get in the car to go somewhere. And that's where you hear Annie absolutely blood curdling scream yeah. and it's because that her daughter has been decapitated and then from that scene we see a quick shot where it's on the side of the road and her head sitting there with all these um all these bull ants all over it yeah being eaten yeah so of course the family then hold a funeral for charlie and the blood curdling screams that that annie's letting out is just yeah, yeah. It, it is it's kind of you can understand it um, and of course, Steve, Steve, the husband, looks through Charlie's sketchbook of drawings, um, and it does. I like it. It's sort of like foreshadowing where the last picture is of her grandmother, and then there's no pictures after that. So it's almost like that was the last picture that she ever drew, which was one yeah. of her grandmother. So he thinks that there's something significant. And the fact of that sketchbook is foreshadowing as well. Yeah, it'll it'll certainly come back into play. Um, of course, Peter starts experiencing panic attacks and smokes marijuana trying to alleviate the the you know obviously the guilt that he's got um of course annie grieves alone while sitting in the car in her, in her driveway she's not going to really be engaging and this is where it's like everyone seems to break off into their own little group you've got steve in one area coping with his grief you've got peter trying to cope with his and trying to be you know understand what and happened. his guilt that he was the and one the who guilt. did this annie's now you know trying to deal with her so it really you know, it, it does happen to just go all over the place, unfortunately. So Annie drives herself to the support group meeting, but decides to turn around while still in the parking lot. And of course, Annie, you know, when she she parks the car and then she decides, listen, I'm, no, nah, I'm going to just drive out. And there's a fellow uh, group member called Joan, and she spots Annie and stops to talk to her. And she hears about Charlie's death and, and Joan, Joan basically confides in Annie about the loss of her own child and her grandson. Um, yep. so she's got a double amount of grief that she's going through. So it's sort of like, it's starting to, now we're starting to build on what's gone on in Annie's life. So, you know, Annie returns home, Steve, <laughs> you know, Steve tries to maybe get some sort of alone time with her, but Annie rebuffs him. And of course, I, as I said to you, there is no chemistry. So no, him, him being rebuffed by Annie, it didn't surprise me at all. No. Um, and Annie, so Annie basically starts sleeping in, um, the tree house in the tree house she's basically yeah, she, now, she brings up heaters and puts them in the tree house yeah she's dissociated herself from her family she wants to be alone she doesn't want to go anywhere near the family she's trying to process her own grief 
I understand that. So Peter's asleep in his bedroom, and of course he hears what he thinks is this clicking noise that Charlie used to uh, make, and he and sees what he thinks is a vision of her dead of his dead sister in the room, but it, it appears to be his only his hoodie in the corner. So that really doesn't go anywhere. You can see that it's like something's going to happen, and yeah, nothing happens. Okay, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't. You know. Um, so Annie visits Joan's apartment, just obviously as a, you know, she's, she's another lady. So she wants to try and get some support from her. And Annie tells Joan about a sleepwalking incident where she doused Peter and Charlie and herself from head to toe in paint thinner before going to light the match. Now, this doesn't even come into play because we don't know why she got to that point. Yes, she was sleepwalking, but how many of us go into the tool shed and grab paint thinner and douse our family in it? And if you've ever smelled paint thinner, it'll wake you up. Yeah. So uh, is everyone that asleep that no one actually worked out that you're getting doused with paint thinner? But it doesn't yeah, go anywhere, right? unfortunately. It doesn't, you know. Yeah, that um, still had no relation to anything else. Yeah. Now, from her body language, Annie uh, implies that the match, the matches were in her left hand and a can of paint thinner in her right. And Annie explains that the relationship between her children and her have never been the same afterwards. Well, you think? Because... Yeah, you know, yeah, think. I don't think that he's going to sit there and go, oh, you know. Um, so, and this is, you know, and I, I seem to be going quick through the movie but this is how quick the, oh, the that's okay because we are. don't want to drag this out no. it was painful enough to watch yeah so steve you know finds now this is a really disturbing scene i don't like this scene because it's yeah. really weird and i understand that people you know they do deal with grief in their own way but steve comes up to annie's workshop to confide to see that she is constructing a diorama of the scene where charlie died where with, she was decapitated. So you see her little head on the thing. You got the pole. You got the car. You got, you got her blood. body leaning out of the car. And of course, I, I, and I, the only thing that Steve can say is, do not let Peter see this. Yeah. Instead of saying, what the mother hell are you doing? Well, not just that, but at no time... Has he said to her, are you okay? How can I help you? I love you. Because there's no chemistry yeah, between the actors. I, I know that. Yeah. So you wouldn't but, get but, that, unfortunately. But you see her so intensely grieving, even after just her mother died, you don't see him having any kind of empathy toward her. No, no. And th this is the whole thing is if she is going to be doing this, this diorama, um, you know, showing at the gallery, I think this would be very, very disturbing if you go and look at this and say, "Oh, look, that's the de depiction of her, her de of her daughter getting my daughter dying." It's like, yeah. what the hell? I mean, there's places for that. That's not in this. I mean, maybe yeah. if she's working. Well, I don't it, think she was in. See, and that's the I thing. Hope she's she not had stopped it. working on the stuff for the gallery. She was just working on stuff that was processing her own emotions. I hope she would not be showing that because that would be extremely disturbing. No. Um, so now we see that Steve and Annie and Peter are having a very, very awkward dinner. And of course, this is where Annie blames her son for Charlie's death. And they really start going at it. And he um, rightly points out that if she hadn't have forced him to take Charlie with him, she'd still be home. Exactly. Which is completely and That is true. You got me to take her. And as he says to her, you got me to take her. She didn't even want to go. Yeah, she was perfectly happy her. being home drawing, but no, you had yeah. to make me take her. 
See, that's the whole thing. Like, Charlie was self-sufficient. She was happy just to be in her room drawing and enjoying her yeah, time doing alone. Doing her own thing, yeah. So you getting her to go to a party and she died, guess what? Not my fault. You yeah. you know, you you would have had your daughter if you didn't give me to I her. mean, his fault driving under the influence of drugs, That, but that's another thing. But also altogether. the fact is that even though that he had been doing that, it was the animal in the road that got him to swerve the car. Yeah. So, but even, but even yeah. so, he didn't even notice anything happened to his sister. And yeah, yeah. So now there's there's a there's a, a sort of like a subplot here, and we're going to just skip over this because there's it just doesn't really matter. Where Joan um is at a supply store, and Annie's at a supply store because she's you know going to buy some more stuff, and she basically basically Joan tells Annie that um she went to a seance and she's become she was a skeptic, but now she's suddenly been shown that because. She's suddenly a medium that she can contact her dead yeah. grandson, Lewis. Um, yeah, so, yeah. So she shows she gets Annie to come over to her house and she shows her how it works and she gives her the tools to be able to do it. And which, and by the way, Charlie and which, by the way, the language that's spoken during the invocation that's that she gives to Annie is a combination of Hebrew, Hebrew and Enochian, just in case you're interested. Okay. Um. So I like it how, like, you know, after this whole thing of where, where Annie actually witnesses what Joan was saying and what was happening, that Annie decides that she's going to go home and do it. But she's going to wake up her family at 2.45 in the goddamn morning. And she drags the, the son. I think we, we actually skipped the bit where um, uh, Peter saw the light in his classroom. No, that's coming up. No, because it's before she does the seance with Was it? um the Oh okay. So there okay, so there's a light that actually happens to permeate through certain parts of the movie that we don't understand why. That it's we come a, later to understand yeah. is the demon. Yeah, but it's basically just a square a square light that goes so if you can depend if you can think of a hallway, think of light on the top, the bottom, and both the sides that goes towards a door and just disappears into the door. Yep. That's now, all that is. Now, what happens is Peter is sitting in class, bored out of his mind, and he sees this light and it startles him. And everybody just kind of looks at him like whatever. And then he ends up with his hand like up and it's doing weird things. It's like it's he's own. having a stroke, doesn't it? Yeah. Or, or a seizure of some sort. And yeah. they're like, what's going on? And then all of a sudden, he just slams his face into the desk and breaks his nose and breaks his nose. Yeah. And then they take him, you know, they, they go to the nurse, they take him, you know, the uh, parents come, take him home, you know, whatever. Yeah. But in an interview, Alex Wolf, who played Peter, explains that he wanted to actually break his own nose for the scene where his character slams his head into the desk. The director respectfully declined. Thank you. told him they give him a soft cushion desk for the scene. When it was time for the scene to be shot, Wolf slams his head into the desk only to discover that the top was foam and the bottom was hard. He actually ended up dislocating his jaw, which is a previous injury that he had. So it like re-dislocated his jaw for the scene. I mean, I like method actors, but come that's taking on. a little far to break his own nose. That's least. a little too far, mate. And yeah, I'm no. sorry. Because that is so effing painful. Yeah. And I'm sorry. Break your nose for a movie that. Actually... And if the scene didn't take on the first scene, what are you going to do? 
Exactly. And and if you're going to do it, do it in a movie that actually makes sense and is good. <laughs> yeah, that's actually worth sacrificing. Don't, for. don't when you're age 17, you can't breathe out of your nose, say, yeah, I broke my nose in a stupid movie that I did that I thought was going to be awesome, but it was a pile of crap. Yeah. So I like how, you know, Joan has shown her, has shown Annie how to, you know, contact the spirits and she manages to bring her poor, <laughs> her poor family down to the, to the, um, uh, living room and really Peter's not interested in this Steve is definitely not into this whole thing yeah but, but she's trying to explain that this is what happened and this is that you know that Charlie is here that we can contact Charlie that you know he she will draw something on this chalkboard yep. that you know she'd done it before and this is what she got the response and you know Peter it was like is like you know I dad dad I don't want to do this dad please please yeah, just make her stop yeah and you know Annie is really pushing this onto the family so much so that at this stage, I said to you, if I was Peter, sorry, if I was Steve, I'd be like saying, okay, divorce court is coming up. I'm taking this child because you're endangering this poor kid. You are yeah. mentally screwing him up. Yeah. Now so, I'd like to point out now, this is, this is actually kind of a fun little trivia to make the chalkboard right on itself. The special effects team put a magnet in the chalk and a magnet on the other side of the chalkboard so they could make the chalk move without anybody touching it. It was difficult to get a small magnet inside the chalk and to make it right smoothly. Ironically, the same technique was used in the film version of Matilda and Millie Shapiro, who plays Charlie, starred as Matilda in the Broadway musical. Really? Yeah. Oh, okay. I thought that one was kind of fun. That's good, that one. Now, I like it when she's doing, you know, this whole seance claiming that she's summoned Charlie. Annie, you know, uh, seems to be possessed. Suddenly, Charlie seems yeah. to possess Annie. And Steve snaps Annie out of it, out of a trance by dousing her with water as Peter is, I mean, Peter is absolutely losing his mind because, you know, she, she even takes on the mannerism of the clicking sound that only Charlie does. Yeah. And with all. With oh, yeah. Because so it was almost like she was being possessed temporarily. Yeah. Between that and all the, 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 the noises going around the house, it's like, you know, it's just, it became too real for Peter. And, and what we didn't realize at that point, though, is that the clicking noise is Paimon. Yeah. And it must have in, in, took her over temporarily. Now, Throughout the film, several words can be seen scrawled on the walls. At one point, there are two words, liftock pandemonium. And liftock is an English transla transliteration of the Hebrew word to open. Pandemonium is Latin for all demons and is what Satan names hell in John Milton's Paradise Lost. Oh, now that's an interesting bit because very few people would know that one. Yeah. And in one of the scenes in Peter's classroom, the teacher is talking about the sacrifice of Iphanesia, Agamemnon's daughter, both if. Iphigenia, sorry, Iphigenia and Charlie are the daughters of those who were sacrificed in hopes of bringing forth a great event, one being victory against the Trojans and the other the bringing forth of Paimon. Oh, now as we're getting closer to the end of this movie, which thank, thank God, God we are, <laughs> so Charlie's spirit is, you know, starts to draw in her old sketchbook and of course Peter sees a vision of his dead sister in the corner and her head falls off, turning it into a ball and then all of a sudden, Peter is choked on his bed. And of course, Peter accuses his mother of sleepwalking and attacking him again. And this is where Annie says to Peter, "Don't tell, don't tell your father what's happening." And yeah. she, Annie goes on to explain that something supernatural is happening in the house, and she's the only one that can stop it. Now, as I said to you in the in the last movie that we did, you know, do not play with Ouija boards. 
you yeah. open you can open doorways that you cannot close i stupidly have played with ouija boards yeah but i i can i can actually close the doors but yeah. i'm not experienced enough to believe that i've closed every door yeah you just no, don't know you don't know so don't play with Ouija boards because you don't know what's going to happen. But there is Annie going, well, I'm the only one that can stop it. Well, you've opened up a door, sweetie. Now you're in deep shit right now. Yeah. Of course, the window above Peter's bed has a mark that looks similar to the one in Charlie's classroom when it was struck by the bird. Now, I didn't put two and two together on this one because it didn't seem that it was going to, it was actually relevant. And it really, in all honesty, it really doesn't isn't really that, that relevant. But of course, this is where Annie realizes that the spirit that she summoned is actually malevolent. Yes, and not I, her daughter. No, it's not her daughter. So Annie grab, grabs her sketchbook, her Charlie's sketchbook, and throws it in the fireplace. And of course, it's at this stage that Annie's watching it burning and it's not burning. And then all of a sudden we see that Annie's arm mirrors the burning book by also catching on fire. So, you know, Annie, and of course, she's also drugged her husband too. Like she put something in Steve's um, water to I knock him out that. because at this stage, poor old Steve is laying on the couch because he's had it with laying in the bedroom. He doesn't want to be anywhere near Annie. Yeah. So there's the this book is burning in front of him. He's asleep. She's trying to grab the book out. Her arm's burning, so she's trying to put that out. So I was like, oh, it just doesn't go anywhere. Yeah, I don't know. It doesn't. So of course, yeah, Annie then returns to Joan for help, but no one's there. And she decides to go into Joan's residence. Well, it's break and entering. Why yeah, not? Why not? Cobra? And the camera shows us Joan's place is decked out in witchcraft paraphernalia, including a photo of Peter inside a ceremonial triangle and a symbol of that Annie recognizes from her family photos. So now she's starting to put two and two together that, that Joan doesn't seem to be all that she's saying. No. Well, because she sees a well, she runs back home and she looks in the photo album at that picture of the group and she finds Joan in the picture with her mother wearing the same pendant. Yes. And that symbol that is shown throughout the film, the cult symbol, yep. uh, particularly on the necklace that Annie and her mother wear is a slightly different version of the real seal of the demon Paimon as shown in old texts of demonology. Paimon is a real demon. The yeah, one of the kings of hell, apparently, was it? The most noticeable difference is that the real symbol has four figures instead of the film's three. The symbol was changed for the film because it's considered bad luck to use real demonic religious symbolism in films. And films who have used real demonic religious symbols, things like The Exorcist, The Omen, and Rosemary's Baby, have infamously been plagued by accidents and hardship. Yes, they have. Anyone wants to know more about that, read up on what happened on the set of The Exorcist. And you'll find well, out didn't why. we talk about that when we covered that? I believe we did. The, the I amount, believe we did. Yeah, the amount of problems that they actually had. And they even had to get a Roman Catholic priest to come in and bless the set um, every time they shot just to try and keep what they were doing at bay. So there was a lot of dramas that was going on. Um, and that, as I said, you know, that's something you just don't want to deal with and don't want to bring through um so we do see that annie discovers uh her mother's headless corpse in their house's attic which just happens to be over the bed right over the where um peter is sleeping so because we we the way that she finds out is that she starts to see um she hears this noise in the attic so she opens up the attic and there's all these flies and everything that comes oh, it was out disgusting of, it was 
So she goes up into the attic. She's got her torch and she looks through and we see that the torch being a flashlight for those in America. Flashlight, sorry, a torch or a flashlight. Um, and we see that she looks over into the corner and there's her mother's decapitated body, body. laying up there. Did we ever find out what happened to her mother's head? Uh no, it's never explained. Yeah. So Peter hears uh, Joan shouting because she's he's in the. But it's also school. interesting that the mother is as decomposed as she is because she's only it's it hasn't been that long. No, it hasn't. And if it, and if they used embalming on her, which they do in the United States, she would still be in pretty good shape. She wouldn't be as icky. It looks like they've dug her up maybe a year later. Maybe yeah. even, maybe even six months later she would have been, but she looks like because they've only just dug her up, and it seems to be that she's only been in the ground maybe a week. If that, I was going to say it only, I I only think it's been maybe six weeks tops. Yeah, and she and if she's been embalmed, she actually wouldn't be that bad. Yeah, so look, she looks pretty messed up. Yeah. Um. So obviously, as we've said that, you know, Peter is at the, at school and he's completely just checked out. He's just not there. And we're seeing that Joan is shouting from across the um, across the fence that she that she's saying, I expel you towards Peter. And of course, this is as you said, she's trying to get him out of his body so Pyman can come in. Yeah. And this is where obviously, as we know, that um, Peter manages to break his nose in the in the school, which doesn't make. Yeah. I don't yeah. Yeah. So Annie, you know, once again, it, there's a lot of parts of this movie that I don't want to go into because they're just, they're just not even interesting. Yeah, let's not even. Yeah. Let's, let's um, just, yeah. So we're getting towards the end of the movie. And, of course, we see, we see that um, Annie's trying to explain to Steve about the connection between Charlie's sketchbook and what's going on in the house. And, of course, um, and saying that Steve needs to destroy it in order to save Peter. But she said that she tried to throw the book into the fire, but she caught fire herself. Yeah. So she figures, well, if I th- if you throw the book into the fire, then I will still catch fire. I'm going to, you know, um I'll sacrifice myself. I'm going to sacrifice myself to save Peter. Now, yeah. she she basically says to to Steve, I can't do it alone. Now, at this stage, Steve has just lost completely. He's like, okay, if you want yeah, me I've to do this, this I've had enough of this. I can't do this anymore. But she's like, please, please, please throw this book into the fire. So it's like, okay. All right, that's fine. But before that, before we get to this point, Steve accuses Annie of digging up Ellen's grave because, uh, as Steve says, you know, uh, as Annie says to Steve, up there, up in the attic, is my dead mother. She's got no head. She's she's yep. laying on the ground. And please go up and see. I just want to make sure that I'm not seeing this because there's so much stuff going around the house. So Steve goes up and then comes back down. And this is where he accuses her of digging up the grave. And he says, you know, this is what happened. Your mother's grave was desecrated. You dug her up. You did that. You brought all this stuff onto the family. Um, and so Annie's really, you know, not interested in this whole thing. And she's like, I didn't do this. This is what happened to the book. I tried to burn it. I want you to burn it for me. I'm going to sacrifice myself to save Peter. And she and he's like, okay, yep, I'll do it. He throws the book into the fire. Presumably, we think that she's going to spontaneously combust. And he goes, Steve. whoosh. Steve spontaneously combusts. So, like a whole body flames. Oh, he is in flames and a half. Now, as I recall, though, it uh, it's almost like it hit him so fast that he was gone before he knew it hit him because I don't remember yeah. him screaming or writhing in pain at all. No, it was almost like a flamethrower. Yeah, he just he just whooshed and he was gone. Yeah, um, and it just and it was there was just no reaction from him, which seemed rather odd. Yeah. So now we see that 
the Annie is completely possessed, which we don't know why, but she's suddenly possessed. We don't yeah, know. somehow she's now possessed. And she's now standing in the corner of Peter's bedroom against the wall, which but look, when I say above above you, she's literally standing, she's like in the corner above ceiling height, watching. Okay, him from... so so she's doing a bit of a conjuring demon. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so Peter's searching the house. Peter leaves his room because uh, there's a letter to the addict, which is withdrawn. And, of course, so Peter finds his father's charred corpse on the ground. And, of course, then Annie chases Peter around the house to the, towards the attic, which is exactly where she wants him to go. Yep. And, of course, the letter, letter to the attic is now down, and Annie jumps up and ferociously pounds her head on the attic door after Peter <laughs> climbs the ladder and retracts it into the, the upstairs yep. ceiling. She is banging on the shit out. She is head button the <laughs> which is like, okay, is that supposed to be scary? It's just annoying. Really. Yeah, it was just so, creepy. Of course, in the attic, Peter finds flies, candles, and a photo of his face with the eyes punched out. And of course, Ellen's body is now gone. So all you can see is like the outline of like, you know, where her And, and his, as I recall, his photo with the eyes punched out was in the middle of like either that symbol or an upside down pentacle or something. Yeah, like similar to that. Yeah. Um, so Annie suddenly hovers above Peter before severing her own head because you're hearing this this cutting thing and you don't know where this noise is coming from until Peter looks up and you see that she's literally hovering above him and she's got piano wire. herself. Yeah, and she's got piano wire. And you know because the camera says, hey, everyone, there's a wire missing in their piano. Yeah, there's there's a, a, a dismantled or destroyed piano. And it, it so that tells you that she has the piano wire from that. Yeah, and you're hearing her cutting her own head yeah. off. Um, so you know, we also see that she he looks over and he sees three undressed devil worshippers standing there in the corner looking at him. So And why they're naked, I have no idea. Don't know why. Peter jumps out the window, which I would do too, but he <laughs> um and of course he hits the ground below, which knocks him out. And of course, Peter rises after a very oddly glowing light is seen previously hovers around his body. And of course, Peter follows him. Yeah, because mother. I mean, but actually jumping from like a a, a second floor, second, third floor. Obviously, that would have killed him. Yes, it would have. He landed on the ground pretty bloody hard. So Yeah, so it opened the door for Paimon to take over the body. Yeah. So Peter's like gets up and he's very drowsy, but he's watching his mother's headless corpse float into the treehouse. And it's like, uh, yep, okay, we don't really see that very often. So we see that Peter goes. <laughs> I think I actually looked at you and said, well, that's not something you see every day. <laughs> <laughs> you don't. Because we see that Peter goes inside the treehouse, and of course we see an assembly of the devil worshippers in various states of undress greeting Peter as he walks in. And there's one woman with long hair in a bathrobe, and Charlie's decapitated head sits atop a statue of Pyman, which oh, I, I thought, totally missed that. Well, I looked at it and I'm like, is that Charlie's head? I totally missed show. it. That was Charlie. Yeah, I, I because it doesn't look like Charlie's. But head. it makes sense because that's where Pyman had resided. Yeah. Um, so Peter looks around with a daze and a very flat expression, and we're showing Annie and Ellen's headless bodies lie there, they're on the ground, side by basically side. bowing on the floor in front of the statue. Of course, then Joan's voice calls Peter Charlie as a woman crowns him but welcomes Peter as Paimon when while the coven basically hails the demon's arrival. The story ends with a shot of a model treehouse filled with dolls that look like Peter, the coven and the head, headless Annie and Ellen, and then we hear a clicking sound, Yep, and that's the end of the movie. 
like I said, now, on a boring scale, doesn't make sense. Don't bother. On a scale of zero to five movie reels, zero being how do I get the last 100 minutes done. of my life? But, oh, you're not? No. I, I, do you want to do the, the score? Yeah. Let's, do your, let's do your stuff first. Yeah, because we'll then we wrap up. And... We'll do the story. Okay, so you okay. do yours. So there, there are four things more that I want to share with you. Okay, cool. So at one point, Peter is under the bleachers. And one of Peter's friends with him under the bleachers can be seen at the end of the film as one of the town's secret cultists. When they're smoking at school, he's the one with the man bun and the hoodie. Yep. And when the camera is slowly following Peter's feet in the treehouse, it pans over the kneeling cultists. And the closest one in the frame is the man bun still intact. Oh, okay. So he was like, he was making sure that this was all going to. Yeah, he was keeping him where he wanted to be. Now, in the opening shot, a life rune, which basically looks like an upside-down peace sign, can be seen constructed into the side of the treehouse. The life rune symbolizes birth and beginnings. The appearance of the life rune signifies the beginning of the story and foreshadows the treehouse as the location of Paimon's rebirth. At around an hour 54, a death rune, which is a right side up peace sign, can be seen constructed into the corner of the attic wall. The death rune symbolizes death and endings, and the appearance of the rune signifies the end of the story. Oh, yeah, because that's because it comes in full circle. Exactly. Now, Hereditary's advertising campaign has been credited for keeping Charlie's death a secret from viewers, notably showing Millie Shapiro prominently in the trailer, even though Charlie is alive for only a quarter of the film. This deliberate and, and it says a lot about this film. And how bad it is that I honestly didn't care that I was actually uh, happy when Charlie got killed because she was so annoying. Yep. Um. This deliberate mislead is similar to the horror classic Psycho back in 1960, where Janet Lee was made to look like the star of the film, only to be murdered a third of the way through. Now I get it, yeah. Now I promised you a piece of trivia that was just going to knock your socks off. All right, knock them off, baby. This movie, Hereditary, Mm -hmm. is included by Steven Schneider, in his list, a thousand and one movies you must see before you die. All I can say, I can't find any words. I know. That's rather a stunning piece of trivia, isn't it? This could be put into the thousand of and one movies you don't have to see before you die. That you don't want to waste your life that on. That you don't want to waste your life on. Yeah. Uh yeah. I'm sorry. I very rarely do I rip a movie to shreds. Um, but I'm doing it because this yep. is I don't know what movie everyone else saw, but this is utter garbage. Yeah. Yep. And that is a very Interesting bit of trivia that will lead us into the very last part, which is on a scale of zero to five movie reels, zero being how do I get the last 126 minutes of my life back to five? It was perfect. And I'd watch it all over again. What would your score be? Zero. Me too. And that is saying something considering that we actually gave Birdemic higher than Hereditary. Uh, That's only because back then you wouldn't let me give it a zero. You made me give it a one. Yeah, well, this is a zero. Now, 
everyone, if you want to, and I'm not going to challenge you on your beliefs. If you believe it's a great movie, but if you do like it, we but would if you do love like to it, hear I would why. really love to hear why it is that you guys like it. So, because this movie is showing up on two podcasts, as it's being shown on the Horror Crypt podcast and this one, I'd like to find out if you want to find, if you want to let me know, horrorcrypt2022 at gmail.com and this one at hello at homeclassmoviechat.com. Please email me. I would love to hear your opinions of this movie and just tell me exactly what it is about this movie that you like and what maybe I have missed something that I just Yeah, what just, did we miss? What did we miss? Everybody else seems to see. Because I have heard nothing but rave reviews and I got to the point where it's like I had seen this movie, I didn't like it to begin with, but then I would listen to other podcasts who were absolutely rave raving about this movie and I'm like I have to see this movie again and I literally I, I checked the the trailer. I looked at the header of this movie. I am watching the right movie. People are saying it is with Tony Collette. It is with Gabrielle Burns. It is about this movie. So I know that this is the movie we're watching, but I cannot see what people have seen in this movie. So I am yeah. giving it a zero. Cat's giving it a zero. I All I can say is this wasted my time and my life. And on my other podcast, The Horror Crypt, I always say, I watch these movies so you don't have to. If you want to go and see it or if you've already seen it, more power to you. But this is one movie that I will never, ever re-watch again. I will never waste the time to watch this. I'd never watch this movie again. I I would not buy it. I would not rent it. I would not download it. No. Okay. Now, that being said, we love that you come along for the ride with us in the discussion of these movies. And if you are, have been enjoying the podcast, if you haven't already, please give us a like and a review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have other friends or family who enjoy movies, please feel free to share the podcast because we love sharing this con these conversations with you. Absolutely. We really love that. You guys keep coming back week after week, listening to us. Absolutely. Pretlon about movies. So we are <laughs> we are very pleased that you guys come back to listen to us. So yes, yes, we do. So thank you for joining us for Hereditary. We hope you found this more interesting than the movie. <laughs> more interesting than we did. <laughs> and we will see you next time. And in the meantime, see you at the movies. Bye everyone. Mm-hmm.